Hello and welcome to the 20th episode of Frontier of Infinity, From Whence We've Come, Part 1. Where we last left off, the final flight of the Vostok program had flown to great fanfare and had won success to match. Valery Baikovsky and Valentina Tereshkova had completed a second joint flight mission and Baikovsky had set a world record for longest solo flight that still stands to this day. But today, we're not going to advance the story any further. Instead, we're going to take a look back at everything we've covered so far, and lay out a roadmap for what's to come. This is a refresher before we move on, so if you want to skip this episode, you can. But, I mean... I'd really appreciate it if you stuck around. Let's begin. Despite the fact that the process of space exploration began millennia ago, when our ancient ancestors first turned their eyes skyward and examined the stars, we began our journey in 1857, around Ishevsk, Russia, where the first of the three founding fathers of rocketry was born, Konstantin Solkovsky. Despite a rough childhood, Solkovsky spent most of his life teaching in the city of Kaluga. As a boy, Solkovsky had read a book by French science fiction author Jules Verne, called From the Earth to the Moon, wherein a group of firearm enthusiasts in post-Civil War America build a giant cannon capable of firing a hollow, crude shell to the moon. The story captivated Solkovsky, and he spent much of his spare time over the rest of his life performing investigations into space travel. He quickly reached the conclusion that rockets would be the best way to pull it off, as they could accelerate a payload gradually, and thus prevent mashing any passengers into paste. Over the course of his career, he wrote technical papers about the feasibility of using rockets to reach space, and developed some of the critical mathematics required to do it. Chief among these mathematical innovations was the rocket equation. Solkovsky's work was groundbreaking, and would echo forward through the decades, up to and beyond the launch of the first space vehicles. But two other pioneers who followed on after Solkovsky made contributions that would be just as crucial to the foundation of rocketry. Robert H. Goddard was an American rocketeer who was also inspired by science fiction to explore the possibilities of using reaction motors to reach space. He independently formulated the rocket equation and launched the world's first-ever liquid-fueled rocket. He then went on to develop new rocket technologies for the rest of his life, inventing all sorts of features that would later become standard on rocket vehicles, including steering mechanisms and propulsion methods. The final of the three founding fathers was Hermann Obert, who spent most of his career working in Germany. He was also a fan of Jules Verne, and also came up with the rocket equation all on his own. 
Eventually, he penned a book called The Rocket into Interplanetary Space, which served as a major inspiration for an entire generation of young engineers. During the interwar years, Obert joined a private rocketry club called the VFR, which was a coalition of private rocket enthusiasts who would test and build their own rockets alongside publishing a periodical journal. One particularly notable member of the VFR was a young man named Werner von Braun. As a boy, von Braun had taken an interest in rockets after reading Obert's book and he had thrown himself into building his own rocket prototypes, though sometimes with disastrous fallout. Von Braun and his fellows in the VFR eventually drew the attention of the German military. Following the end of World War I, the German military had been placed under severe restrictions by the Treaty of Versailles, but those limitations did not extend to rocket technology and as such, the German armed forces were keen to create a rocket program of their own. Leading up to World War II, von Braun rose through the ranks of this new organization and eventually became its head. With the outbreak of World War II, von Braun and his colleagues developed a ballistic missile designated the V-2, which was by far the most sophisticated rocket in the world at that time. Equipped with a state-of-the-art guidance system and a one-ton Amatol warhead, the V-2 was able to fire from launch sites in Europe and strike targets across the English Channel in Britain. Luckily, the V-2 emerged too late in the war to make a difference, and the Third Reich was defeated all the same. After the war, von Braun and many of his fellows surrendered to the United States where they were collected and shipped back to the U.S., granted clemency for their participation in the Nazi war machine in exchange for their loyalty and research. This is a highly controversial part of space history, and I would encourage all of you to do some more research on Fawn Brown to form your own opinions. Episode 2 of this show, Dance with the Devil, discusses this topic in greater detail. While the Americans were collecting von Braun, the Soviet Union were doing the same. They managed to win a good number of German thinkers themselves. But they went even further, shipping entire facilities back to Russia for later use. In both the U.S. and the USSR, work began reverse engineering and making improvements to the V-2. Von Braun took advantage of his newfound freedom to begin agitating in favor of space exploration. But in the USSR, the man who would rise to become Von Braun's chief rival was hard at work as well. Sergei Kurlyov was an engineer from Ukraine, who had spent a harrowing few years as a prisoner in the Soviet Gulag system, imprisoned on charges that were entirely bogus. But with the coming of the war, Kurlyov was moved to a prison design bureau where he could support the war effort. And once the war was won, he was released from prison so that he could participate in the burgeoning Soviet rocket program. Kurlyov rose to become the chief designer of that program in short order. And he was tasked with creating a new type of weapon, an intercontinental ballistic missile. 
The concept was to create a ballistic missile capable of lobbing ordnance across oceans and continents. A critical innovation that would allow the USSR to make full use of their nascent nuclear arsenal. Kurlyov and his team succeeded in their task with the R-7 Semyorka, the world's first ICBM. This missile debuted in 1957 and was an immediate propaganda coup for the USSR. Meanwhile, Von Braun had only managed to develop a short-range ballistic missile called the Redstone, which was far smaller and less powerful than the R-7. Regardless, Von Braun and his team created a more powerful version of the Redstone that they called the Jupiter C for the testing of warheads intended to one day be carried atop ICBMs. But Von Braun knew that his Jupiter C could be used to orbit an artificial satellite around the Earth. He begged for authorization to do it, as not only would it be a massive win scientifically, but it would also allow the U.S. to get one over on the USSR, their new global rivals. In Russia, Kurlyov likewise knew that his R-7 was capable of doing the same. But unlike Von Braun, he was given the green light to orbit a satellite. On October 4, 1957, an R-7 rocket carried aloft a small beeping orb called Sputnik 1. It was a huge victory for the Soviets, and it caused mass panic in the U.S. But there was already a U.S. rocket project underway, which was supposed to launch an American satellite in response. It was called Vanguard, but when the rocket that program produced was rolled out onto the launch pad, it exploded. A desperate President Eisenhower finally gave Von Braun the authorization he needed, and the Jupiter C launched a satellite called Explorer 1, which was much more sophisticated than Sputnik 1, and discovered the Van Allen radiation belts while it orbited. The space race was on. It was quickly evident that the realms beyond the sky were to become the newest battlefield in the Cold War where the U.S. and USSR would fight it out for dominance and strive to prove that their respective ideologies and methods of organization were superior. Throughout the duration of 1958, both sides launched satellites of increasing sophistication. The Soviets had beaten the Americans to sending an animal into space with Sputnik 2, which had been launched even before Explorer 1 had made it into space. But overall, the year was better for the Americans than the Soviets. They attempted more launches and enjoyed a higher rate of success. Though, perhaps most crucially, in October of 1958, the National Aeronautics and Space Administration was created to manage American space projects. While Von Braun and his crew were not yet a part of NASA, they were still firmly an agency within the Army, they would eventually be transferred under the NASA umbrella. NASA immediately set to work on a new program called Man in Space, which was quite appropriately titled. Not just a name, it was a mission statement as well. But this project was eventually retitled to Project Mercury. NASA had designs to launch a piloted spacecraft. But in order to do that, 
they would first need pilots. The hunt for the first class of American astronauts began. NASA wanted test pilots specifically. People who had a worthy record of service, were used to operating complicated and unproven machines, and had the physical and mental fortitude to blaze trails on a new frontier. After an extremely unpleasant and thorough selection process, seven pilots were chosen. They were dubbed the Mercury 7, and they made their public debut in a press conference at the Dolly Madison House in Washington, D.C. They were instant heroes. The news services and publications of the U.S. sang their praises without them even having flown yet. They represented the promise that America would eventually top the Soviets in space. All the while, the NASA engineers were hard at work designing the capsule these new astronauts would fly. Kurlyov had his own plans to place a Soviet in space first, but he was having some problems winning the approval he needed from the Soviet leadership. He did manage to launch a pair of wildly successful lunar probes called Luna 2 and Luna 3. And with the announcement of the American astronauts, a fresh fire was kindled among the Soviet elites. They wanted a program to match the American one, and selected their own group of cosmonauts. Meanwhile, Kurlyov got to work on the machines to carry them spaceward. In the U.S., testing difficulties with the Atlas rocket that was hoped to carry the first astronaut into space saw it replaced with Von Braun's Redstone. This meant that the entire mission profile had to be reworked, as the Redstone did not have enough power to launch a crew capsule into orbit. Instead, they would be ballistic flights, up and down along a narrow parabola without reaching orbit. It wouldn't be as prestigious as an orbital flight, but if they could put up an American before a Soviet, it would be a great victory nonetheless. Kurlyov and his team were working on a spacecraft called Vostok, which would be the Soviet crew capsule. Testing saw some problems, but that was nothing compared to the tragedy of the Nadellan disaster. An experimental rocket called the R-16 exploded on the launch pad, killing dozens of engineers and technicians. The damage done to the launch pad would delay the crewed flight project. But even amid this tragedy, advancements were made. It was decided that Yuri Gagarin would make the first flight. He would be the first Soviet to leave the Earth. The Americans made the same decision from among their astronauts. Alan Shepard would be the first American. As 1961 stretched out, testing troubles on the American side delayed their launch but the Soviets were ready to charge ahead. Yuri Gagarin was fired into orbit aboard Vostok 1 on April 12th. He completed one full orbit around the Earth and returned safely to the ground, the first human to slip free of the Earth's tether. The first American followed on May 5th, but it was an underwhelming mission. Not only was it after Gagarin, it wasn't an orbital flight. That summer, both the U.S. and the USSR launched their second missions. 
Gus Grissom flew on Mercury Redstone 4 on a repeat of Shepard's mission. Germán Titov, on the other hand, spent an entire day in orbit aboard Vostok 2, though he suffered from space sickness for most of that time. With a new human phase to the space race underway, plans began to be laid on both sides of the conflict for moon programs. That would be the ultimate prize, to place either the Stars and Stripes or the Hammer and Sickle on the moon. Von Braun had been developing a new series of rockets called the Saturn, and Kurlyov was working on a launch vehicle called the N-1 to rival it. But in the United States, improvements had been made to the Atlas launch vehicle, and it was finally approved to carry a human cargo. As such, on February 20th, 1962, John Glenn flew into orbit aboard a Mercury capsule he had called Friendship 7. Despite a sensor error that falsely reported the heat shield had come uncoupled from the capsule, it was a resounding success, and the Americans finally had an orbital mission to their name. Glenn's flight was then followed by a nearly identical one made by Scott Carpenter on May 24, 1962. Around this same time, one of the Mercury 7, a man by the name of Deke Slayton, was removed from flight status before he had gotten a chance to reach space on account of a heart condition that most doctors considered to be entirely benign. He was disappointed, even enraged. But the other astronauts rallied around Deke and lobbied to get him promoted. He eventually rose to become Coordinator of Astronaut Activities, or the head astronaut. The Soviets had been carefully observing the American missions as they were made, and in August of 1962, the Soviets launched two Vostok capsules into orbit simultaneously. Vostok 3 was piloted by Andrian Nikolaev, while Vostok 4 was crewed by Pavel Popovich. They spent multiple days in orbit before coming down together. Kurlyov and his team had carefully orchestrated the flight to make it appear that they had managed to pull off an orbital rendezvous, even though this was not actually the case. Regardless, it set off a fresh wave of panic in the U.S. and around the Western world. But new and exciting things were afoot in the United States. An expansion of NASA facilities was underway in preparation for the coming Project Apollo, which was hoped to place an American on the moon. John F. Kennedy, now President of the United States, made a tour of these new and expanded facilities, capping it off with a visit to Rice University in Texas, where he delivered his famous We Choose to Go to the Moon speech to galvanize the American people in the quest for dominance in space. Shortly thereafter, Wally Schirra flew on a six-orbit mission that went so well, it became known as a textbook flight. But later that same month, the Cuban Missile Crisis rocked the world, bringing the U.S. and Soviet Union to the brink of war. Catastrophe was averted, though, and the space race carried on. Kurlyov was encountering resistance on his road to the moon lacking the funds and political support that NASA enjoyed in the U.S. 
but Von Braun wasn't having a carefree time. The massive F-1 engines that were to propel his Saturn moon rocket skyward were proving difficult to make work given a penchant for combustion instability. But even so, there was one more flight to be made in Project Mercury, and it was Gordon Cooper who would have the honor of being the pilot. Over the course of 34 hours, Cooper completed 22 orbits. Then, the worst issue to strike a Project Mercury mission emerged during the final orbit, when the automatic stabilization and control system lost power. Still, Cooper managed to compensate, and he brought the capsule down safely. It was a harrowing but successful note on which to end Project Mercury. The Vostok program ended in June of 1963, with another dual-launch mission, this time piloted by Valery Baikovsky and the first female cosmonaut to reach space, Valentina Tereshkova. Baikovsky set a world record for longest solo spaceflight that still stands to this day. With the twin ends of Mercury and Vostok, so too ends the first season of Frontier of Infinity. When we return, we're going to jump in on the next two major projects in the American and Soviet space programs. The Americans are ready to move forward with Gemini, and the Soviets with Voshod. These two programs will expand both superpowers' abilities to carry out operations in space. They will see more incredible firsts, and lay the groundwork for the eventual drive to the moon. I know I say this at the end of every episode, but I really do mean it. Thanks to all of you for listening. When I first started this show, I wasn't sure that I was going to be able to pull it off. I didn't know anything about recording or publishing episodes or anything like that, but I've learned a great deal these past few months, and I really do enjoy making this show. At the beginning, Project Mercury was so far off that it felt like we'd never get there. But now here we are, right on its doorstep, just, what, six months later? Thereabouts? It's my hope to make Season 2 more even. I have a style and a schedule now that I certainly didn't during the first few months. I was doing a lot of experimentation back then, but moving forward, I want to focus on honing the product that I have. Now, I am thinking about taking next week off to make sure that the next slate of episodes is organized and ready to go, so don't be surprised if there's no episode next week. Season 1 has been a lot of fun and I hope you decide to stick around for Season 2. There's plenty more to cover. So until next time, I'm Tom. This is Frontier of Infinity. I'll see you in Season 2. Music